Now for our text this morning, please open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. We're looking at Isaiah 11 verses 1 to 9. And uh, if you've been following along during our Advent series, we've been in the book of Isaiah. We've looked at two other passages already. We looked at Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9, and now today we're looking at Isaiah 11. Uh, back in Isaiah 7, we focused on uh, chapter 7, verse 14, and Isaiah 7, 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. And uh, we, Juan Carlos preached on Isaiah 7, 14, the first Sunday of Advent. And then we spent weeks 2 and 3 looking at Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7. And perhaps the key verse there is Isaiah 9, verse 6, which says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And my guess is that most of us in this sanctuary are more familiar with Isaiah 7, 14 and Isaiah 9 than we are with Isaiah 11. My guess is that's how most of us are. So until today, when you're going to leave here, you're going to think, you know what? I love Isaiah 11. It's, it's the best of these prophetic promises. And uh, I hope you will say that. It's, it's wonderful. It's hard to pick between these three because Isaiah 11 joins Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 to form a unity in their prophetic promise of the coming Savior. Their prophetic promise of the coming Savior and his reign and the peace he will bring and the people he will save, the people he will bring all the way home to be at home in heaven with the triune God and his people for all eternity. You see, I believe that you're, you will see that the prophetic promise of Isaiah 11 is one of these promises that is actually as big as the Bible. As big as the Bible. This passage at times will take us all the way back, all the way back to the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden, and it will even take us all the way to the very end of the Bible, to Revelation 22. This passage will call us to, to think of Christ's first coming, his first advent, the incarnation, and this passage will call us to think beyond that, far beyond that, to his second coming at the end of the age. And all that awaits followers of Jesus once we pass from this life to the next. So hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, life-giving word. I'll begin reading Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. 
The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. And so we're going to look at these, these verses under three headings. We're going to see the Messiah's stump, the Messiah's reign, and the Messiah's peace. So the Messiah's stump, the Messiah's reign, and the Messiah's peace. And so first, the Messiah's stump. If you'll look with me at Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And so let's first talk about this stump. In order to understand this, this imagery of the stump, I'm, I'm going to summarize for you okay, what we skipped from Isaiah 9 to Isaiah 11. I'll talk to you about what happened in Isaiah 10. Because in Isaiah 10, um, the Lord acts like a lumberjack in many ways. He's chopping down nations, leaving stumps behind. You see, in the middle of Isaiah 10, we read about the nation of Assyria being used like an axe in God's hand to discipline his people. But then, by the end of Isaiah 10, the Assyrians are themselves a force of stumps cut down by the axe. So God used them as an axe and then turned the axe on them. Therefore, the, the imagery, the vision, as we move from Isaiah 10 to Isaiah 11, is that there are tree stumps everywhere. The lumberjack has been busy. What was a great forest now, just a bunch of stumps, a bunch of tree stumps, as far as the eye can see, but one stump is not like the others. It's the stump of Jesse. Now think about that name, Jesse, and some of you are thinking, okay, well, where do I know that from? Jesse is the father of David, father of King David. Therefore, the stump of Jesse points back to the promise that God made to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, there are many big promises, many big prophetic covenant promises throughout the Old Testament. And 2 Samuel 7 may be one of the more important ones that many of us don't know much about. So let's look at 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 14. This is God's promise to King David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come to you from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, this promise is made to David, but you may have noticed Isaiah 11 doesn't talk about David. doesn't mention David. It mentions Jesse. It doesn't say that there's going to be a branch or a shoot from the stump of David. It says there's going to be a branch or a shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse, not David. Okay, well, why? Well, David's house, David's lineage of kings, at this point in redemptive history, had become so very corrupt. And so you see, this is not just a promise of one more mere man to serve as the next flawed king over God's people. This is a much greater promise. This is not a promise of the next king in the line of David. This is a promise of a new David. 
This is a promise going back to the stump of Jesse. This is a promise of a new David. This is the promise of the true and greater David who is still to come. Commentator Alec Motier puts it, the reference to Jesse indicates that the shoot is not just another king in David's line, but rather another David. He's the shoot, he's the branch. So let's look back at Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now that word translated shoot, it means twig, and the word translated branch means sprout or sapling. So it's talking about a new king, the greater David, you know, coming in, in the smallest of forms. Just, just a twig, a sapling, a sprout. You see, this is yet another prophetic promise of the coming Savior, that he will come as a twig, as a shoot, as a sprout, as a sapling, as a branch from the stump of Jesse. Jesse, who was from Bethlehem. Okay, so are you starting to see? See, this is a Christmas passage. The new David, the greater David, who comes like a small twig or sprout from the stump of Jesse from Bethlehem is Jesus. He's the true and greater David. He is the fulfillment of the 2 Samuel 7 promise. He is the son from the virgin in the Isaiah 7, 14 promise. He is the son who was given in the Isaiah 9, 6 promise. And he is the shoot from the stump of Jesse here in Isaiah 11. It's a Christmas passage written 700 years before the incarnation. And we're meant to, to not miss that, to see that, for that to... You know, to be highlighted for us, blinking, you know, with big lights. Don't miss that. And this is why the New Testament begins the way that it does, right? The very first verse in the very first book of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Jesus is the shoot, this branch from the stump of Jesse. Okay, but look again at Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot... From the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. Now think about that, bearing fruit? I mean, how can there be fruit? The imagery here is of a tree stump. A tree stump. I mean, this past fall, um, one of the trees in our front yard died, um, and it was, the branches were falling left and right, and, so, and it was right by the front door of our house. And so, you know, I wasn't sure it was a big deal, but Alicia thought, you know, we should probably get that chopped down so we did we got it chopped down and uh and so we and then but we didn't leave the stump in the front yard of course not right no one does that we ground the stump all the way down and so why why do we grind the stump all the way down because the tree's dead there's not going to be any more fruit that comes from that tree there's no use in keeping the stump the stump's dead however this stump of jesse has hidden life things seem dead They seem too dark, too bleak, impossible, failed promises, promises made, promises broken. That's what it seems like. But from this stump of Jesse, from this stump of God's people, when everything seems hopeless, when it appears as if God's promise of a Savior, all the way back from Genesis 3.15, will fail, the shoot from the stump of Jesse is born in the Bethlehem manger. That God's eternal son takes on flesh, enters our world, dwells among us to live and die and rise from the grave as our Lord and Savior. It seems like everything 
is, is helpless, but there is hope. There is a living hope. So listen to how Alec Motier puts it. He says, undated or unending hope is a living, ever-present assurance for God's people. And it is at this point that the passage speaks as much to the church today as in Isaiah's time. And so think about that quote for a moment. See, the, the, the Christmas tree is one of the universal symbols of Christmas today. My guess is that every one of us has a Christmas tree of some sort in our house. You know, the Harrises have, I think, a Christmas tree at least in every room. I even think our cat and our dog have a dedicated Christmas tree um, for them. we got Christmas trees everywhere. Some are little, some are big. But, but do you realize what Isaiah 11 is saying? That, that a tree stump would actually be a more fitting reminder of the unending, the undated, the unending living hope and ever-present assurance we have that God will always keep all of his promises to his people. Things seem hopeless. It seems as if the promise is dead in the water, but it never is. Now, I'm not advocating to go home and chop down your Christmas trees down to the stump, okay? I'm, I'm pro-Christmas tree. Keep your trees, please. Keep your trees. But we must, must never forget that no matter how impossible or how hopeless things seem in the world, no matter how impossible, no matter how hopeless things seem in your family, in your friendships, in your relationships, in your life, we know that God keeps his promises. Right? Christmas tells us that God has kept his oldest promise. Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15, to send the offspring of the woman to come as our Savior, who would crush the head of the serpent. Therefore, we can be sure, we can be certain that God will indeed keep all of his promises. You can be certain that God will keep all of his promises to you. Now, that's, that's the Messiah's stump. Second, there's the Messiah's reign. And so several verses tell us about the Messiah's reign. And the first thing we learn is that the Messiah is sufficient to reign. He's sufficient. He's adequate. He's qualified. He's equipped to reign. He's qualified to rule the world. He's qualified to rule your life, my life. He's qualified. And Isaiah tells us why. Look at Isaiah 11, verse 2, in the beginning of verse 3. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Him being the new, the new David, the true and greater David, the, the shoot, the branch, the little sapling from the from the stump of Jesse. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now look at these verses. Throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon certain individuals for the purpose of providing them with divine empowerment and enablement for various God-given tasks and roles. However, the promised Messiah will be different. Do you see that? The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him in a permanent way. Okay, and look at verse 2. The Messiah will be empowered and endowed by the Holy Spirit with several things. There's three little couplings there, three pairs. First, wisdom and understanding. The ability to see to the heart of every issue. The supernatural ability to have discernment, to always know 
the right option to follow, the right thing to do, the right path to take. Empowered by the Holy Spirit with counsel and might. The ability to not only form the best plan, but, but the, the might, the power, the ability to execute that plan. There's also, uh, let's see, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of knowledge in the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. You see, this, this Holy Spirit-empowered Messiah King intimately knows God the Father's heart and God the Father's will. And this Messiah delights to fulfill God's will and God's call on his life. I mean, so look at these verses. I mean, do, do you realize we have all three persons of the Trinity right here? This incredible promise. And then we see the fulfillment of this prophetic promise in Jesus' baptism. In Matthew 3, verses 16 to 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The coming, the coming Messiah, the coming Savior, this, this true, true and greater David, empowered by the Holy Spirit, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And today, on this side of Pentecost, all Christians are indwelt and filled with the Holy Spirit, who empowers us and enables us to follow Christ more wholeheartedly, who enables us and empowers us to, to more and more die unto sin and to more and more live unto righteousness. And so Jesus' reign is marked by his sufficiency. He's sufficient. He's equipped to rule and reign. Secondly, Jesus' reign is marked by truth and justice. And so look at the rest of verse 3 and the beginning of verse 4. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And think about how different that is that description is of Jesus than, than how we live our lives, how we go about our business, making our decisions. You know, we can wrongly judge a book by its cover, and we often do. We, we can, I can, we can form our opinions far too quickly, and we can be wrong. We often are. But Jesus never is. He never does that. His judgments are always perfect. Jesus always sees all of the truth, that nothing is ever hidden from his gaze, that he is a king who always, eventually, ultimately puts things to right. The next thing we see is that Jesus' reign is marked by the power of his word, or put another way, the great instrument by which Jesus, our king, accomplishes all of this is the very word of God. Look with me at the second part of verse 4. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And so you can even see now right, this, this transition that they're from thinking earlier in Isaiah 11 about Jesus' first coming, his first advent, and now they're thinking about Jesus coming as the judge at the, at the end of the age. John Calvin says, the prophet here extols the efficacy of the word, which is Christ's royal scepter. And so listen again to verse 4. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. 
So the rod of his mouth, the, the breath of, these, of his lips, these phrases tell us the Messiah would command such power and such authority that his mere breath, his mere words would destroy all of his enemies. Right? And it's his words, it's his breath. All scriptures God breathed is pointing also to the power of God's word. The power of God's word to condemn those who refuse to repent of their sins and trust in Christ. And the power of God's word to save sinners like us who see our need for grace and who trust in the Savior. As the old hymn puts it, he speaks and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive, the mournful broken hearts rejoice, the humble poor believe. And then lastly, Jesus' reign is marked by righteousness and faithfulness. Look at verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. If you think about his, this righteousness as a belt and faithfulness as a belt, Paul alludes to Isaiah 11 in Ephesians chapter 6 in the full armor of God. But, but, don't, but don't miss the fact that when you put together all of these marks of Jesus' reign, no king in Israel, no king in Judah, no king anywhere else in the world, no president of the United States ever had all of these gifts. As Ray Ortland puts it, unlike every other human leader in the sorry length of our history, Jesus is literally qualified to rule the world. We have nothing to fear from him. We are foolish to resist him. We can never be too loyal to him. We can trust him. You see, Jesus is truly qualified to rule the world. He's truly qualified to, to rule and reign over my life. He's truly qualified to rule and reign over your life. See, Jesus is truly our sufficient Savior. He really is. He's sufficient. He's adequate. He's qualified to rule and reign over your life. And you can always trust him. He will always care for you with perfect wisdom, perfect understanding, perfect counsel, might, truth, justice, righteousness, and faithfulness. See, Jesus knows you, and he understands you much better than you know and understand yourself. And he's committed to your good much more than you are. He knows what you need better than you do. He knows what's best for you. And his counsel to you in his word is always true and given to you in love for your good. I mean, if only we would believe that. If only we would believe that. What if we believe that? Thinking back to verse 3, Jesus says, we're told, Isaiah says that Jesus, Jesus' delight is in the fear of the Lord. Think about that. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. I mean, delight such a great word. What do you delight in? Think about that. What, what do you delight in? You know, this is a time of year. It's getting late for this, but there's still a little time to, to make, you know, wish lists. Um, my, my kids, you know, they, they, there's four different wish lists. Um, they're, they're all a little different. They're all similar. But those, those wish lists, they, they communicate 
right, what, what my kids desire. They communicate something about what they delight in. Communicate something about what they believe, what they believe will make their hearts sing and dance. What about you? If you had to make an honest list, what do you delight in? What do you really desire? What do you believe if you had, if you had it, it would make your heart sing and dance? What do you delight in? What if we delighted in Christ and his word? We can always trust him. We can always trust this Christ. We can always trust this Christ's word. So, Where in your life do you need to begin trusting Christ and his word this Advent, this Christmas? Because you can trust him. You can trust him. He's that faithful. He's that righteous. That's the belt he wears, righteousness and faithfulness. You can trust him. You can trust his word. Trust him. Trust him always. His word is absolutely true. It's given to you in love for your good. That's, that's the truth today. That's the truth tomorrow. It will always be true. So that's the Messiah's stump, the Messiah's reign. And then finally, let's look at the Messiah's peace. Okay, and this is going to be fun. Look at verses 6 to 8. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Now, and at this point... Um, I have to confess, I should have warned the, the, the moms and dads of young children that this is a little bit of a disturbing text, okay? And, but, but it's in the morning, and so you, you have a while before we get to, for, to, to the night, and hopefully you can avoid having nightmares about your child, you know, this, your child playing with a cobra, okay? So, but think about what these images are. I mean, they're, they're meant to be, in a sense, ridiculous, they're meant to seem impossible. You know, we're, we're meant to, to, to read this, to, to hear this read, and think, what is Isaiah talking about? I mean, he's promising way too much. I mean, think about these, these images of wolf and lamb, leopard and goat, calf and lion, cow and bear, just hanging out together, not eating each other, not terrorizing one another. A nursing child playing with a cobra. It's crazy. Don't, that's not recommended, okay? Without even a hint of danger. And, so, and we know, thinking about these things, that these things are impossible. Richard, these are, this is impossible for our world. I mean, it, it, most of us won't let our kids play in our front yard, much less play with a cobra, right? This is impossible in our world. And why is it impossible? It's impossible because we live in a sin-cursed world. Now, we hear this and go, this is impossible because we know that things are not the way they're supposed to be. And so hearing Isaiah 11, 6 to, 6 to 8, it's supposed, if it makes you think back to the Garden of Eden, then know that's exactly what it's supposed to do. 
It's supposed to make you think back to that garden paradise, but to not take us back there and leave us in Eden. This passage is meant to take us back, but it's also meant to take us all of the way forward to the new Eden, which is coming with the new heavens and the new earth. Or as John Mackay puts it, it is not a return to Eden, as if all that could be wished for was a reinstatement of what had been lost. It is a new Eden, restored beyond imagining. Do you see that? This, this is what's so incredible about Christmas. This is why God gave the world his only begotten son. This is why the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and dwelt among us at the first Christmas. He came as the second Adam, as the final Adam, to succeed where the first Adam failed. To remove the curse from our lives and eventually from this world. It's what Paul writes about in Romans 5 verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, that's the first Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the final Adam. Jesus took on flesh, dwelt among us, lived a sinless life, died the atoning sacrificial death, and rose from the grave to remove the curse of sin from our lives and eventually from the whole world. That Jesus died to pay the full penalty our sins deserve. And all who trust in him are washed clean from their sins by his blood. Jesus lived the perfect sinless life, and all who trust in him are credited with his perfect righteousness. We're washed clean in his blood, washed clean from our sins in his blood, and then clothed in his righteous robes. See, this, this is the peace that the Prince of Peace brings. This is the Messiah's peace. See, Jesus has made peace between sinners like us and a holy God. And so listen to another Christmas passage that we don't only think of as a Christmas passage, but it is. This Christmas passage from Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20. For in him, that's in Christ, that's in this shoot from the stump of Jesse, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's, that's Christmas. That's one person, two natures, fully God, fully man. That's the incarnation. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself, to make peace, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, this this is the Messiah's peace. This is true Christmas peace. Do, do you know this peace? Do you want to know it? I know this time of year and in a sanctuary with this many people, that there's no way that everyone in this room is in the exact same place in their spiritual journey. I know that. I know there are some people in this room who don't yet know Christ. I know that. And if you don't know, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I became a Christian as, as a young adult. And so I know what it's like to be in your chair listening to someone like me saying these sorts of things. And I know what it's like to lay your head down on your pillow at night and not have peace, but desperately want it. If that's you, it doesn't have to be this way. 
There is peace for you. That's what Christmas is all about. Trust in this Christ. You admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. You believe that Jesus is the Savior you need. You realize that apart from this salvation that Jesus gives all who trust in him, that that you are not at peace with God. You are not in some neutral relationship with God. No one is. That we either either are at peace with God, peace that Jesus made by the blood of his cross, or we're not at peace with God. We're at war with God. We've made God our enemy, shaking our fist and rebellion at him and his word, telling him, no, I will go my own way. I know what's best for me. I don't trust you. You see, everyone is either at war with God or at peace with God by the blood of Christ's cross. Will you trust in this Jesus, this Prince of Peace, who has made peace for you by the blood of his cross today? Isaiah 11 reminds us that the fullness of the Messiah's accomplished peace, which has now made peace with God for all sinners who trust in Christ, one day the Messiah's peace will be seen and experienced in fullness everywhere in all the earth. That's what we read in Isaiah 11, verse 9. So let's look there now. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, verse 9 is both a summary of verses 6 to 8, and verse 9 explains how and when the fullness of this messianic peace will come about. And there's that phrase, in all my holy mountain. And that's a very loaded phrase. I'm going to say a little bit about it now, but but I want to encourage you, if, if you weren't here for it, to go back and look at the sermons from this summer. When we're in the Psalms, it's a sermon on Psalm 48 by Richard Colquitt. It's an incredible sermon about... God's holy mountain. I encourage you to go back and look at it. It's this famous theologian, Richard Paul Colquitt. Go back and re- listen to that sermon. So on the one hand, in all my holy mountain refers to the hill of Zion or Jerusalem. But on the other hand, we can tell from the second half of verse 9, this language about the whole world being full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea, we can tell this, the, the, verse 9 takes this vision of messianic peace in the absence of hurt and destruction much further. That Jesus' king, uh, Jesus' rule and reign would only be in Jerusalem, limited to one specific holy mountain, but it's going to encompass the whole earth, fill the whole earth. Listen to how John Mackay explains it. Though in all my holy mountain refers in the first instance to Zion, as the location where Yahweh had been placed to make his presence known, here it is a description of the new dwelling place that his people have with him. A dwelling place which is not geographically circumscribed. It's not limited, but will encompass the entire new heavens and new earth. The my holy mountain is essentially found wherever Yahweh manifests his presence to his people. So look again at verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then that word translated knowledge, it's a sort of verbal noun. Verbal noun that could be translated full of knowing the Lord. See, one day the whole earth will be utterly filled to the brim as the waters cover the sea. One day the whole earth will be utterly filled and indwelt by God's presence. 
and his holiness and his glory. As Alec Motier puts it, the holy God will dwell with his people, welcoming them to his holy mountain. They enter into personal, intimate communion with him, knowing the Lord. The waters cover the sea by filling it to the fullness of its capacity. Everywhere God is present in holiness, and in every place the knowledge of him is enjoyed to its fullest extent. You see, this is what Jesus came to ultimately bring about. So Isaiah was calling his original audience to long for the coming Savior, to long for that first Christmas. Well, Isaiah is now calling us to trust in the Savior who has already come, and and Isaiah is calling us to long for our Savior to come again, to long for him with eager expectation to, to usher in the fullness of his kingdom, rule and reign in the new creation, in the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, do you, are, are you beginning to see this? That Isaiah is calling us to lift our gaze and to expand and stretch our understanding of what is so glorious and wonderful about Christmas. You see, Christmas is worth celebrating, yes, because Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, he's the risen Lord and Savior. Yes, he did take on flesh and dwell among us at the first Christmas. Yes, he died on the cross to pay for our sins. But there's so much more to the story. There's so much more to our story. There's so much more to your story. That Jesus rose from the grave that first Easter. He ascended back to God the Father's right hand in heaven. And we're still longing for Jesus to come again. And to consummate the fullness of his kingdom. When the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. To experience what we read in Revelation about how he will wipe away every tear from every eye. And how one day death will die. Will be no more. There'll be no more mourning, crying, or pain. And the new creation will be filled to the brim as the waters cover the sea with peace. With peace under the rule and reign of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. As we read in the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 3 to 5, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So you see, Isaiah 11, it's a Christmas passage, but Isaiah 11 is calling us to not only look back with gratitude and joy at Jesus coming that first Christmas. I mean, I hope you do that. Look back with gratitude and joy at that first Christmas, but we're also to look forward to Jesus' second and final coming at the end of the age with great joy and with eager anticipation to remember what he has done and what he has yet to do. Now, I don't know what your favorite Christmas carol is. Mine is Joy to the World. And because I have a little bit of pool around here, we're, we're going to sing Joy to the World uh, in just a few moments. I know a guy. But I'm curious, raise your hand if Joy to the World's also your favorite Christmas carol. Let me see if I have a few. Goodness. I knew the first service my favorite service. I knew that. I'm going to be praying for the rest of you guys. I'll be praying for the rest of you. But it was written by Isaac Watts, and I don't know if you knew this or not, but Isaac Watts did not originally write Joy to the World to celebrate Jesus' incarnation at the first Christmas. 
wasn't trying to write a Christmas carol. He wrote it after meditating on Psalm 98. And he wrote it to celebrate the return of Christ at the end of the age. And I think that's what makes Joy to the World such, such a beloved Christmas carol, at least for me and the 830 service. I know you guys obviously don't like it. Even if we don't realize it, even if we don't realize it, that's what makes it so special. It's so very wonderful at Christmas time to sing a song which looks forward to Christ's return in the full and final consummation of all he came to do. And so listen to these words. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room in heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace, and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and in particular these prophetic promises that we read in Isaiah 7. 9 and 11. We thank you for the way they prepare us to celebrate Christmas well, understanding who this Jesus really is, this shoot from the stump of Jesse, realizing just how qualified and equipped he is to rule and reign over all the earth, to rule and reign over our lives. Father, my prayer today, this Advent, this Christmas, is every man, woman, and child who's hearing the sound of my voice will be very clear about who Jesus really is and who he's not. We are, we are sinners in need of a Savior. He is the Savior we need. May we trust in Him. May we trust in Him. Receive full forgiveness for our sins. Be clothed in His righteousness. And experience the peace He has made for all who trust in Him by the blood of His cross. Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.